Jamie Bing is the publisher and CEO of Canongate. We don't use the word CEO. I'm, yeah, I'm the publisher of Canongate. Now, uh, as I mentioned, I'm going to start off by kissing your ass. <laughs> it's, it's such a literary story, in a way, what you did. You come from nobility and money. Mm-hmm. And you had a profligate you. <laughs> At least that's what the press says. Yeah. But what you've done with that is you've, you've invested in a company that was basically in receivership 10, yeah, year, no, ten years ago. I'd, I, was, I'd wor- I worked there for a couple of years before this management buyout. But, um, yeah, it was, it was on the verge of going bankrupt for a second time within, within three years. So. And what you've done is gone to the very root of creative imagination. You went to the Bible and you, uh, you sort of repackaged the Bible. Yeah, it was one of the most important bits of publishing we've done, and the timing of it was we, we launched the, the Pocket Canons, which uh, one talks about the way, one thinks about the way whether things are meant to be, and there was something about the fact that it was called Canon Gay, and then we published the Pocket Canons. It, it, it was one of the things that made me feel this was, this was fated for us to, to reinvent the Bible or republish it in a way that hadn't been done before. Well, it's, it's central to the canon too. Yeah. I mean, what a nice play on exactly. It was, and I always loved the, I always loved Canon Gate for that exact reason: the way you could break it down and what gates do, because they obviously take you from one place to another and from one space to another. And you've got a lovely um, logo too. Yeah, that's a gate that's, kind of. That's a new logo that we actually commissioned. We we did that about two years ago, I think, is when we a friend of mine called Tim Moore is the guy who did it. And um, you know, the pocket canons were a very they were very pivotal. It was a very pivotal piece of publishing for Canongate because it was one of the things that was probably the thing that kind of catapulted us to a different place as a publishing house, and it was one of the things that really put us on the map internationally as a publishing house. And perhaps you could explain what you did. You got some big name authors to sort of introduce parts of the Bible, correct? Yeah, it was. Um, we really we broke down the Bible into its component parts, i.e., the books and. It was a friend of mine called Matt Darby who I'd been at university with who just called me out of the blue and said, um, Jamie, I've got this idea and I'm just, I don't know, it's a crazy idea, but I, you know, I, the fact that no one's done it makes me think possibly it is crazy and what would be the, the barriers to, to doing this? And he pitched the idea to me and said, you know, I want to, what about publishing the Bible in great pocket-sized editions and, you know, but in its component parts, the individual books. And I said, that's a very interesting idea, but to make it work, we'd have to, Commission introductions from people, and that that kind of. Faye inter- Weldon was one that I read. She did uh, Corinthians, and um, Nick Cave did the Book of Mark, and Louis de Bernier did the Book of Job, and uh, David Grossman did Exodus, and Bono did the Book of Psalms. Yeah, and it's just fabulous. Um, I mean, what you're doing is is you're taking the center of the of the canon and you're bringing it up to date. You're modernizing it in a way. To me, it was all about offering an opportunity for a new audience of people who perhaps hadn't read the Bible to think, well, you know, if Nick Cave is introducing the Book of Mark, there's a reason why Nick Cave is introducing it. It's because there's something in it that he thinks is worth exploring and it has things to, to teach you that are worth learning. And plus and it's not daunting, too. They're, they're, they're easy to was, read, aren't they? That was a very important part of it as well because the, you know, there are two things driving us. One is to look at the Bible above all as a work of literature and so the fact that it was predominantly secular writers, they're was actually a wonderful man called Richard Holloway who introduced the book of Luke, who in fact I now publish, who used to be the Bishop of Edinburgh and it was very interesting having someone who kind of came, was of the cloth as it were and there was the Dalai Lama introduced some epistles, but other than that they were all secular writers in most instances 
you know, writers and with Bono and Nick Cave musicians, but they were people who came to the Bible as a work of literature, although they were obviously aware of what it was also a book that kind of underpins various faiths. Mm-hmm. And of course, a, our Canadian, with a great Canadian critic, Northrop Fry, his great book, The Great Code, is a place to go if you've been, if you read the pocket canons, uh, Northrop Fry's a book examining the Bible as a work of literature it would be a great companion piece mm-hmm. the Bible was also kind of one of the things that I realized when I first took over Canongate and was starting to think about how I could realize some of my ideas that I wanted to express as a publisher was you have very limited resources when you're a small house and particularly financially and, and so one of the things that I realized was kind of necessary for us to to start to turn Canongate to the sort of house I wanted it to be was be quite creative with particularly classic works and so you know it's it was easier for me to buy the the rights for Knut Hampson's Hunger this extraordinary novel we did a great new translation with Ferry Linkstard than to be involved in an auction with an agent in London where you're paying over the odds for a for a, a good or very good or not so good piece of contemporary fiction and well so you we, the bible you don't have to pay anything well right? <laughs> you buy we didn't have to pay anyone but prior to that we've been acquiring reprint rights in some really fascinating books you know i bought the reprint rights for charles mingus's beneath the underdog which i absolutely love uh, one of the great music autobiographies and we started reissuing the work of chester himes and john fante and richard brodigan and jack london and and in all these instances i would get interesting contemporary writers to introduce the books because it was to me such an obvious marketing thing that you know if you get Roddy Doyle to introduce Charles Bukowski's Ham on Ryan if you sell the serial rights to Roddy's intro to GQ and the Daily Telegraph and the Scotsman and the Irish Times you're immediately opening up Charles Bukowski to a new audience to a new audience and and plus you're getting such a great buzz you know there's a buzz about it if you've got these great contemporary writers that are doing these introductions as you say and that's appearing in these, these trendy magazines. It's just a great way to get buzz. It was great. You know, when I, I started publishing the work of Iceberg Slim, who's a very interesting guy. He was a former pimp from Southside Chicago who wrote a phenomenal first book called Pimp, The Story of My Life. And I, when I was at Edinburgh University where I studied literature, I, my dissertation uh, was called uh, A Development of the Black Oral Tradition, the Hip-Hop Lyric. And I wrote a 10,000-word um, dissertation on really where hip-hop lyrics had come from both socially and culturally and linguistically and musically and and it was when I was reading around for this dissertation that I read an interview with Ice-T and and Ice-T was telling me in the interview as I was reading it that he took his name from when he was growing up in South Central he used to he came across the work of this former pimp from Chicago who moved to to LA in the in the early 60s who who completely Ice-T had never, or Tracy Marrow, as he was then known, had never come across someone who spoke to him in the way that Iceberg Slim did. And he used to learn how huge tracks of Iceberg Slim's prose in his head. And he used to just rap it out to his friends. And so they used to always say, come on, give us some more of that Ice-T, you know, because he was known as T for Tracy. So, And that's where his name came from. So I wrote to Ice-T when I acquired the reprint rights for Pimp and said, how about introducing him? He got back to me immediately. And having Ice-T and also Urban Welsh gave me the most beautiful gave him the most beautiful thing he wrote about Iceberg Slim, who for him is one of the great kind of unrecognized American writers of the 20th century. And the combination of Irvin and Ice-T really helped a whole... You know, we sold 
So that's uh, your genius, though. That is your genius, is to take these contemporary, hip contemporary writers and then package them up with, with literature that you really think deserves a, a wider audience. It's just kind of a genius. I just think it's 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 just obvious to me. Kind of that. <laughs> but no one else is doing it, though, right? Well, people have been introdu- have been commissioning people to introduce books for a long time, and it's something that is it's not rocket science. But the art to me is the appropriateness of the people to whom you go. And you know, Thomas Pynchon wrote this wonderful introduction for us for a book by Jim Dodge called Stone Junction, which I, is a wonderful, wonderful novel. And you know, it was it's that. The satisfaction of going to someone who you sense somewhere, you sense because you've read their work and you've read the work that you're wanting to have introduced. And yeah, yeah. so often people came back and said yes because... Well, they'd probably be grateful. Thank you. you know, thank you for allowing me to, to write about someone I, I love. The latest introduction that I've set in motion, and he, uh, he said he definitely wants to do it, is Johnny Depp introducing John Fante's... Wait until spring, Bandini. He's a huge John Fante fan, Johnny Depp, and he puts him very much in a in a kind of in a monster trio with Nathaniel West and, and Scott Fitzgerald as really the, the three writers from the early part of the 20th century who wrote about LA and Hollywood in a way that no one else has done before or since. Now I can't wait to see what Johnny writes mm-hmm. about about Fante. And let me uh, let me get back to the Bible here theme, uh, the Bible, and uh, and then move to the myths because you've uh, you've done it. Uh, Really interesting series on myths, uh, sort of following the uh, following the model that we've just been speaking about. But I want to read the great uh, Joseph Campbell, who spent his life studying myths, and this is what he writes about the Bible. What I would suggest is that by comparing a number of different parts of the world and differing traditions, one might arrive at an understanding of their force, their source, and possible sense, for they are not historical. That much is clear. They spe- now he's talking about myth, but he's also talking about the Bible. They speak, therefore, not out of events, but of themes of the imagination. And since they exhibit features that are actually universal, they must in some way represent features of our general racial imagination, permanent features of the human spirit, or as we say today, of the psyche. They are telling us, therefore, of matters fundamental to ourselves, enduring essential principles about which it would be good for us to know, about which, in fact, it will be necessary for us to know if our conscious minds are to be kept in touch with our most secret, motivating depths. In short, these holy tales and their images are messages to the conscious mind for quarters of the spirit unknown to normal daylight consciousness. And if read as referring to events in the field of space and time, whether of the future, past, or present, they will be misread and their force deflected, some secondary thing outside then taking to itself the reference of the symbol, some sanctified stick, stone, or animal, person, event, city, or social group. So I think what he's talking about here is the literal uh, the literal reading of the Bible mm-hmm. and how dangerous that is. Yep. And what you're doing is you're getting straight to the creative imagination, the symbol, the, the importance mm-hmm. of these stories and myths to every everyday life. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's beautiful you reading that passage. It, it reminds me just what a beautiful prose stylist he was, Joseph Campbell, as well as the ideas contained within his prose are, are even more exciting or as exciting yeah, it's something which 
I know you wanted me to read this thing that Pullman wrote because it's it's a perfect kind of response to that in a way. And and, and Pullman, this is uh, just to explain. This is this is a, a leaflet that is part of a box series that you did. Yeah, it was something. Philip has been someone I've got to know over the last few years, and someone I admire enormously as a as a writer and as a thinker and as a human being. And he's been very supportive of the myth series when I first pitched the idea to him, and we'd never met before, although given a very beautiful blurb to a, a book on forgiveness that I published by actually the man I referred to earlier, Richard Holloway, the former Bishop of Edinburgh. And he gave me a lovely blurb for it. We'd never met, and it was at the British Book Awards, and he, I think, was voted author of the year. It was when he'd written the concluding part of his Dark Materials trilogy. And I went up to him and said, there's something I would love to tell you about, which is this project I've been working on for two or three years, and this was about four years ago. And and I said it's to do with myth, and the idea is to... I'm approaching writers from around the world whose work I admire and who I think might be interested in this project, and the idea is to get them to, to take a myth of their choice, any myth they want from any mythological culture, and, and retell it in any way they feel the urge. And Philip was immediately like, that I've been doing that all my life. As a, a teacher for 20 years, every Easter term he used to do the Iliad, and every summer term he'd do the Odyssey, and on, for an hour on the, the Friday of each week, he would just, off the top of his head, start retelling the stories. So he did over 10 weeks. Kind of, what a beautiful thing to have witnessed. I wish I'd been mm -hmm. taught by Philip Pullman. I was taught by some really pretty interesting people too, but Philip, would have, that would have been a treat. And anyway, so he was, from the word go, he was like, I love this series. I want to do something for you for it. And I kept him appraised of the writers who were coming on board, and you know, it's, it's, it's gathered momentum, this over over the kind of seven years I've been working on it. And he was the first person to read the three myths that we launched with, Margaret Atwood's The Penelope Ad and Jeanette Winston's Wait and Karen Armstrong's Short History of Myth. And I, I sent all three of them to him, hoping for some short blurb, you know, of him to write something about the myth series and the first three books in it. And I remember getting this email from Philip, having read them all, he'd love the first three books in the series. And, but instead of just sending me a blurb, he said, I've, just, I've written a short thing that I thought might be useful for you, which is titled A Word or Two About Myth. And I was so bowled over it by it when I read it because it, it really got to the absolute essence of what the project was all about, but also, more fundamentally, what, what writing is all about. And as he says here, a myth is intoxicating because it is something other than just a story. In one way, it's the very opposite of poetry. Robert Frost said that poetry is what gets lost in translation. We could say that a myth is a story that is not lost or harmed or diminished as it sheds the skin of one language and assumes that of another. Because as C.S. Lewis pointed out, a myth is a story whose power is independent of its telling. Our first experience of the story of Orpheus and Eurydice would affect us just as strongly in whatever version we came across it because it's the shape of the events that contains the power and not merely the language. This is a fact designed to keep writers humble. The brilliance and dash of our sentences are of little importance beside the events we try to describe. It's a reminder that most of our readers still regard our words as a window and not as a surface. They want to see through them to the great and tragic forms acting out the passionate drama of the story. The cosmic events the characters repeat in this driven and compulsive way are far more interesting than our prose style. Humble, humble. Humble. Nevertheless, 
Each new writer does bring something never seen before to a story that might have been told a thousand times. It might never have been seen from quite this angle. It might never have been suffused with quite this emotional tone. The intelligence that plays over the events might never have glittered with quite this silvery wit. This is what makes the telling and retelling and retelling of myths such an endlessly refreshing struggle, such a demanding privilege, such a humbling joy. Boom! You know, when yeah, I yeah. when I first read that, I was just like, "That is gorgeous." He, um, oh, you know, just uh, just the thing that stood out for me. I love the way he uses the word dash. Yeah, it's. Well, a, let's just look at that. Where is that? Again? It's uh, the brilliance and dash, dash of, of our sentences. sentences of little importance beside the events we try to describe. It's like he sent me that version, and then he sent me a slightly tweaked version, and a slightly tweaked version, so he'd almost kind of, he'd revised this short, but really beautiful essay. And when I, when I read that, I, I, I kind of, my heart leapt with joy, because he had articulated so precisely what the whole myth project was about. And actually, it reminded me of something which, there's an amazing... Swiss-based publisher called Daniel Kiel, who, who founded and still runs a, one of the great German language publishing houses called Diogenes. And uh, I'd been sent about, I think it was maybe in 2002 that they had their 50th, or maybe 2001, they celebrated their 50th birthday, and Danny had started it whenever that was in 1951. Um, at the end of this hour-long documentary that I was sent by a friend, Cornelia Eberle, who's an editor at, at Diogenes, the interviewer is asking Danny Keel, kind of, you know, what is it that keeps you going, you know, like for 50 years you still publish and he's still as engaged and, you know, driven and as passionate about the authors he publishes now as he was 50 years ago. And he said, you know, at all my life I've found that the writers I publish are much, much better at articulating the things I feel than I can myself. And he said it was Federico Fellini who was a good friend and who I published who who said something to me once that in a way is, is the answer to your question. And he said, basically, I am an optimist because the great myth of the person who tells another person a story won't disappear that quickly. There will always be someone who feels the need to tell a friend one of his ideas or one of his dreams. And that was how that documentary ended. In fact, when we did this little myths notebook that I've got here in front of me, that was something that to me was almost like a mantra for the entire initiative of this myth project. And well, not just the myths project, but your, actually, whole, your whole raison d'etre, I would To think. being a publisher, you yes. know, and it was someone like Daniel Keel is one of the, the many publishers who have been publishing before me to whom I owe much and from whom I've learned an enormous amount, whether it's directly or indirectly. Well, um, and look, look, uh, look what you've done with these books, too. Uh, just looking through them, I love the way you use both red ink and black ink throughout the books. It's just a well, thing of beauty. That's a biblical thing as well, if you think about it, in terms of how we come to see the Bible often is through that use of red and black ink. So that was one of the yeah. the tips of the hat going on there. Yeah, but, um, illuminated manuscripts in a way. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and also, I think it's in the, the Karen Armstrong, or maybe it's, maybe it's the Jeanette Winterson, but where you've actually sort of got the blind embossing right on the jacket yeah, of well, the book. It's of Karen's book. It's just you do justice to these works, well, and that's that's what's so pleasing 
from a from a book collector and well, book lover's perspective. It's lovely to hear you say it because a lot of thought goes into it. So when it's appreciated, when you you spend a lot of time working on something, it's it adds. It's a very gratifying thing. And there's something Karen said, which Karen said, which reminded when you read from Joseph Campbell, she makes this lovely comment about myth at one point. She, she says, a, a myth in one sense is, is some, an event that happened once, but which happens all the time. Correct me if I'm wrong, but what you're, you're on, a, on a mission to find those voices that articulate these myths in the best possible way for this generation. And for future generations, I hope, because I think people will be reading Margaret Atwood's The Penelope Ad in, in 50 years' time, and will be enjoying and being kind of entertained but also truly kind of illuminated into ideas on the way society works and the way people interact and well and tapping into the, the most important stories that, that, that are sort of in our genes okay, in that sense it was it was a very obvious idea the myth series because all the writers I love are well all writers full stop whether they're conscious of it or not are, are retelling myths are dealing with these archetypal stories whether it's the quest narrative or you know the, the way they are trying to spin stories that will help all of us try and understand just what it is that, that a life is or a series of lives and that, that journey one goes upon and the, and the things that can be learned in the course of that journey to, to some sort of journey of enlightenment was musing on this last night and the question one should ask is well what myth am I living <laughs> but just to figure out okay where am I maybe well, where am I going w wouldn't it be fascinating to find out find what that myth is so I can get a you know tap into it I think you're living every myth you know that's the thing it's just it's the way of uh, it's the way you read your life is is that's what that's what determines which particular myth you see your life as following but you know your your myth your life is is constructed of of every myth That's yeah you, it, it, there is a certain amount of choice involved you're um, suggesting well or now possibly no choice at all that you know your your life is within every life you can understand it through a whole number of different variants on on different journeys because every myth is a, is a journey of one one form or one form or another um <laughs> That's the woman from Porlock. What, what is Porlock? Okay. First thing in on yeah. Coleridge. He's <laughs> <laughs> growing up by work. I remember thinking when we were out in Frankfurt, well, we, did, we did this incredible, it was a wonderful event out at Frankfurt with the three writers that we launched the series with, plus David Grossman, who has written a very, very interesting book on, on the myth of Samson, which is not simply a, a re it's not a retelling of a myth kind of what it is is actually a, a psychological exploration of the character of Samson through one of the most brilliant close readings of text I've, I've ever read kind of it's a, and it's one that posits at the end that Samson was the first suicide killer and it's an attempt to try and unravel this enigmatic man that was Samson who was not Samson the hero as David Grossman read the book and in fact he couldn't have been further from that and so he tries to understand why he ended up becoming the person he became and that strikes to the very core of what every human being needs to do in the course of their life which is trying to to wrestle with the the things that can't be understood in terms of the the things that constitute your very mm -hmm. idea of being you, there were um, the things that things that upset you, the things that you're afraid of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to look at uh, um, 
your success as a publisher in light of what's going on with um, with the internet and with Amazon and particularly I was uh, mentioning I attended a, a session with Amazon uh, recently uh, just yesterday mm-hmm. and they're go- they are making it so easy for people with manuscripts to basically promote them for t- for twenty nine dollars you send them your manuscript and a bit of uh, a bit of artwork and you will have your book up beside all of your books my mm-hmm. book or or whoever has 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 a book up against the Da Vinci Code mm-hmm. and they'll look exactly the same up on Amazon they'll look exactly the same mm-hmm. so a lot of these writers don't have to go genuflecting in front of a publisher to get to get exposure to get to get market and so uh, my sense about the role of the publisher say previously you were competing maybe against other publishers mm-hmm. to to create uh, a reputation as you know as an arbiter of uh, or a discerner of um, of great work and it seems to me that because there's going to be such a flood of additional information and books mm-hmm. via Amazon and, and these types of companies. W- what's going to set the publisher apart and make them successful is this, this the very thing that you're doing. And, and, and I see I you working the floors at all these different book fairs, looking for talent, I would assume, is what your, your main thrust is. You know, I think the same imperatives exist now for a publisher as they did 200 years ago. Kind of my understanding of the relationship between the author and the publisher is, is not the way you describe it. I know it's not simply how you understand it either, but it's you know I don't expect any author to be genuflecting to, to me as a publisher. It's in fact the opposite. You know, I, there was something that my dear friend Morgan Entrekin told me, which was something that Sam Lawrence, who was kind of his mentor and publisher, said to him, which was that uh, I never expect gratitude from an author, but be grateful when you get it. Which I think was a very important thing to say and something that I kind of believe fully. Oh, what, do you, what do you mean by that? For me, the publisher, the opening part of the relationship is that they've created something which, you know, depending on how you acquire books, but the way that I acquire books or the books that I like publishing are things that works that have a fundamental effect on me and how I see the world. So what they have done, the gift that they have given me by just even writing the work, and I don't even need to be publishing the books for that matter. It's just anything that I read that, that I that enriches your life. That enriches my life. It's yeah. something that I am, from the word go, I owe them gratitude for having made that, created that work. Now, in the publishing process, the publisher then has a very important role to play in understanding that work. And that understanding manifests itself in lots of different ways from the, the close editing you do with the author of the book, the way you typeset it, the way you jacket it, the way you talk to booksellers about it, the way you talk to the media about the book, the way you talk to publishers around the world and the responsibility then shifts onto the publisher in order to to realise that book's potential and try and find the audience that it deserves and really kind of spread the word about that book and so, yeah, but the authors don't necessarily want to get involved in all of that. No, they, want, they want to write. They want to write, and they can play a key role in the way that the the book can be promoted. Because often they're extremely articulate and yes. are able to open up the book in ways. But that's, you know, as I often try and impress upon the people that I I work with at Canongate is that we actually make the books. Kind of the writers write them and do the thing without which we would be nothing. But mm. we make them. We change the entire. 
we, we color and alter the way that people enter their books from the jacket we give it, from the image we create. The, well, you turn it into um, a, a work of art. You turn it yeah. into a physical object that's a work of art. But in some cases, in other cases, it's just basically packaging it to promote it so you sell lots of copies of it. Yeah, and you know, I think there's... I'm absolutely passionate about the, the business side of publishing too because to me that's they're, they're inextricably linked. You know, To publish successfully is not just about having a good eye and, and being able to pick excellent books. That's almost the easy part of it. I think the really challenging thing is to, is to publish books in original ways and, and not be restricted in the way you go about your publishing by what's been done before, uh, or not simply by what's been done before, but actually to try and do things in innovative ways in the way you take books to readers. But, you know, when an author does appreciate what you're doing, that is a, an enormously satisfying thing when, when you do publish a book successfully and when you have that, what can be an extremely beautiful and, and deeply satisfying relationship. Mm. And, you know, well, I I'm sorry to interrupt, but uh, Jan Martel mentioned this. I, I read it somewhere that, that uh, Faber, he was with Faber, and that uh, he had the choice of going with you and Canagate, but he just he really loved the, uh, the enthusiasm and thinking that you brought to... Uh, to wanting to, to work with him, I think you read, wrote him a, a significant uh, letter, correct? Yeah, I wrote him a letter saying why I thought Life of Pi was such a, a wonderful piece of fiction and why I felt uh, an enormous urge and desire to publish it and why I was going to publish it as well as I possibly could and some of the ideas that I had for how to, to make the book the success it deserves deserved so, to be. So did you scoop scooping him to tick off Stephen Page or...? I don't think Stephen... Stephen wasn't even at Faber then. Oh, wasn't Stephen he? He okay. joined in 2002, I think, Stephen. Oh, okay. And, uh, no, Faber's one of my favourite publishing houses on the planet. I think yeah, it's uh, one of the... really one of the great, great lists in the English language. And well, they're, they're, the, they're the, the gold standard. If you, if yeah, you for me, they're yeah. absolutely a, a publishing house. I, I, one of the publishing houses I look up to and learn from and, and, and aspire to create something that maybe in a few decades' time has something... It won't it'll have a different sort of list and it'll be composed of different writers but I, I hope we can have the same editorial standards they have And uh, but we'll always be you know, each publishing house is distinct and has its own strengths and weaknesses and uh, you know, to me the Faber is, has illustrated some of the things that are absolutely precious and core to a publishing house and so I try and emulate them in lots of ways and you know, there was no hard feelings that Jan decided to to leave, kind of they more than anything favor respects the author, yeah. and so the author's choice, obviously. the author's choice, and yeah. look, it worked out well for all of us. You know, yeah. favor sell our books <laughs> in Britain, so they um, every well, time. How does that work? They, uh, we can work very closely together with key accounts, but their field reps sell our books into the stores across the UK and in yeah. Europe as well. So, okay. no, our, our our lives are are closely connected. What what uh, what do you want your kids to think about you? It's an interesting question. I want them to... I want them... I don't know how much I care about what they think of me. What I want them to do is to think. And anything I can do to enable them to be free-minded and free-spirited and to be curious and to be kind is, is what I care about. And the fact that they might come to recognize I was partly responsible for their outlook on life and and their way of seeing is 
if they come to appreciate that in later life, then that would make me very happy. I, I have two wonderful children who who are um, incredibly important to me. And, How much time um, do you spend with them? I have them kind of every other weekend. I'm no longer married to their mother, so but we still are very close, and we live pretty close to one another in London. So I, I see them a lot. And um, yeah, it's great. It's funny. I have the same setup, and in fact, it's better than it was before. So it's interesting. Maybe that's just a comment on the, where uh, our, our familial uh, societal patterns are are going. Perhaps I don't know. Yeah, I kind of my my mother and father divorced when I was. Aged eleven and funny, age eleven. It's funny. something I'm enormously grateful for in retrospect because they were happier as a result of it. It was extremely amicable their their divorce and they were mm. very philosophical about it. And mm. you know, I gained enormously by their by their separation because of you know, particularly my stepfather, the the man who married my mother. He he's a very interesting man. One of the things he said to me very early on and I had actually known him from a much younger age because he's a godfather to one of my elder sisters and in fact he and my mother were kind of childhood sweethearts in Belfast in the late 50s so my stepfather had always loved my mother well he helped and you uh, finance the purchase he, he was enormously supportive with the um, the buyout of Canongate in 94 but he said something very interesting to me to, when he became my stepfather and I had something which I I feel is I've definitely kind of Digested, and it's something I've tried to do with my own children. He said, "My job is to make your life interesting, not easy." And I thought that was a great way yeah. of not just describing a stepfather's role, but actually a parent's role is to make your children's life lives interesting, not easy, and to try and open things up to them, but not make you know make sure that they find things out themselves and that they they go through the that life is is challenging because it's out of challenge that you know challenges are what creates. Without challenges, I think the um, yeah less, much less less likely to thrive as a human being because it's it's out of those challenges that all sorts of interesting things come. Yeah, you talk about uh, emulating favor. Mm-hmm. You talked about uh, seeking out great talent, and tapping into the the myths that we all sort of live under and by, either consciously or not. Yeah, that summarizes where you're at. With with publishing, does it? There's, there's, is there, uh, is there something, uh, something else that's driving you? Sort of a vision, or you're happy, uh, you're happy in your, uh, your married life now. So you're not, uh, you're not seeking the white goddess. Or no, I, you know, I believe that anything is possible, and uh, and that one has to try and play a part in, in changing things for the better. And I think books play an enormously important role or have the potential to play an, an enormously important role in, in the kind of the psychic development of human beings I think they're one of the collectively and then individually exactly mm-hmm. and um, so that's that's where the evangelical side of me really kicks in is in my belief and faith in the potential of the word mm-hmm. and to be in a position where you can well, presenting the word too. I think that's yeah, a fabulous. Presenting the word, you know, that's a. It is a kind of. Pullman talks about the humbling, humbling privilege of being a writer. It's it's a, a humbling privilege to be a to be a publisher too. It's an empowering position. The decisions you make can have consequences beyond your ken at the time of action, 
and that's what I love is the the seeds that get sown through through publishing. We need about just about five five more minutes. We're just doing an interview here. Is that would that be okay? Just uh, five minutes. Just there's a microphone on here. Okay. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. Hey. Okay. Thank you. That'll come over really nicely. Yeah, it's good. It's a lovely American uh, accent there. Yeah. Where the hell were we now? We were, we were getting really profound. There was something really good coming out of there, too. That it was just... Uh, well, to me, it was getting to, to that kind of... the. You ask about that the drive, and I was saying that the, that's where the evangelical... Thing. The presenting of the uh, the presenting of the word and the fact that words are the most powerful thing, really. Yeah. You, you, you launch an idea into the you know the collective consciousness. Uh, that's what you do. You're 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 launching a, a kind of nuclear bomb, aren't you? In a way. Yeah. Well, it's it's lasting inc- impact can be felt many many decades and centuries after yeah. after the words were written. I think an appreciation of that, both its potential for good and not so good is something one one needs to be fully aware of as a publisher because words are very dangerous things as well as being things that can be empowering and and play a, a very positive role and the yeah, the bible is a very good example of that because of the different uses yeah. um to which it's been put propaganda tool yeah to basically uh for the catholic church to to mm-hmm. assume power over uh, millions and millions it's so fascinating, isn't it? You package it up, you get it out there, mm-hmm. and then it's out there for for whomever to sort of use it for whatever purposes they may wish. Yeah, and that's you know that's where that whole thing of the ways of presenting is so important because you can color the way that people enter a, a work, but also yeah, that's where I've always been. Ambiguity is something that I I kind of love, and one of my favorite, in fact. I go back to him again. He's a very significant person in my life. Is this man Richard Holloway? And one of the books we published together was a a beautiful book called Doubts and Loves. And the subtitle is What Is Left of Christianity. It was a book that came about because of a, a letter I wrote to a, a very interesting woman called Mary Warnock when I sent her Richard's first book we published together, which was called Godless Morality keeping religion out of ethics. It was a very controversial book because he was still the Bishop of Edinburgh when he wrote it. And the, the underpinning thought behind the book was that religion is not the foundation of the moral. And he then extends that uh, into a very provocative and stimulating book about where do we draw our morals from is if religion is not the foundation of the moral. And it was at the end of this, Mary Warnock wrote me this lovely letter. She, she thought Richard's book was fantastic. But she said at the end, I wish he'd written just a small thing at the end to say, well, what is the role of religion if it's not the foundation of the moral? And he answered by writing a, another book called Doubts and Loves. And the title comes from a, a poem written by this wonderful Israeli poet called Yehuda Amakai. And the poem goes like this. It's, um, it's called The Place Where We Are Right. In the place where we are right, flowers will never grow in the spring. The place where we are right is hard and trampled like a yard. But doubts and loves dig up the world like a mole, a plough, and a whisper will be heard in the place 
where the ruined house once stood. And I remember first reading that poem and rereading it and rereading it and thinking about it and you know I must have I must have recited to a few people over the years. And I'm fascinated by that central question it grapples with, which is it's a kind of railing against fundamentalism, that poem, in terms of you know, the place where we are right is hard and trampled like mm. a yard and flowers mm-hmm. will never grow in that place. And of course who's to say, yeah, who's to say what's right, what's wrong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm always interested in books that question, you know, look at moral ambiguity and, and uh, explore the, the dangers of, of any rigid thinking on any subject. Can any well, it's also fascinating, too, sir, that the, uh, I, I met, to, and she's being published by Faber, uh, Madeline Tian. Mm-hmm. She's written a book called Certainty. She, she is something very special. We had a, a really good interview, uh, and, it, and it centered around this, this need, this yearning for certainty mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, incapacity of people to live with uncertainty and mm-hmm. ambiguity and Leonardo da Vinci of course that was one of his things was t- teaching us how to live with ambiguity without yearning for certainty well there's that beautiful um, letter that, that Keats wrote to his brother which is where he defined the very concept of negative capability do you know this letter he, he said one must have negative capability that is the ability to exist within mystery, uncertainty, and doubt, without ceaseless reaching after fact and reason. And it's just an absolutely beautiful. beautiful kind of summation of, of the need to to not only live but actually to revel within neg- negative capability. It's it's within negative capability that that real understanding comes. Yeah, um, and yet we're also afraid of, of the unknown, aren't we? Yeah. I, can I remember off the top of my head there's a beautiful thing that Goethe wrote when he talks about action and it's a, in a way it's another thing that has driven me as a publisher and I just need to oh, this is how it goes he says um, and to me it, it absolutely is a kind of mantra and something kind of deeply engraved in my heart and soul and he said um, until there is commitment there is hesitancy the chance to draw back always ineffectiveness concerning all acts of initiative and creation there is one elementary truth the ignorance of which kills kills countless ideas and splendid plans but the moment one commits oneself then providence moves too a whole stream of events issues forth that no man could have dreamed would have come his way if you believe you can do something do it boldness has power magic and genius with it boldness is all do it now. Mm-hmm. And I think about what I'd like my children to think of me. One of the things I would like them to 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 have is a is a fearlessness because mm-hmm. I think that is a that combined with curiosity and kindness. So they're very important things. And you know, there's nothing to fear. Absolutely nothing mm-hmm. to fear. And that's that's been one of the things that's I've been very I think been very liberating for me as a publisher is that I've had you know. Well, what are the big What are the big fears? The big fears are fear of death and fear of poverty. If you can get rid of those, mm-hmm. then, then as you say, you can be bold and and, and act, and uh, and yet so few people are capable of doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and poverty. Obviously, there are different ways of understanding what poverty is. You can be very wealthy and be impoverished in in much more important ways than the material ones. Yeah, I, I've never understood why. One should fear anything, including death. It's a, it's a, it's crazy to fear death. In fact, I go back to Richard Holloway. The last book we published with him is this beautiful book called Looking in the Distance, 
Uh, its subtitle is The Human Search for Meaning. And um, Richard, in the last section, it's, it's structured as four movements, this book, called Seeing, Looking, can't remember the four sections. The last one's called Leaving, and it's a 60-page thing on death, and it is just extraordinary. You read this, and this is one of the books that... Well, it's one of the best articulations I've ever read about how one has nothing to fear in death. It's a really, it's an enormously powerful piece of writing. We're going to publish it in America next year. In fact, House of Anansi published it in Canada. It's a beautiful book. I'd recommend it to anyone who listens to this interview. It's called Looking in the Distance. It's a wise book by a very wise man. Jamie Binks, thank you for, uh, for talking with us and for presenting and bringing talent and important works uh, to